Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of the ESPN Footy Podcast. We've just seen uh, one hell of a grand final, Jake Michaels. The D's saluted, uh, 57 year drought broken. What did you make of the contest? Because there's plenty to consider and talk about. Uh, yeah, great game for almost three quarters and then it sort of blew out. But um, let's let's give a shout out to uh, our old colleague on the podcast, Neil C. Wang, who is a diehard Demons fan, um, been through a lot of tough years and wrote a really good piece for us ahead of the grand final about just what it's been like to support the Demons over the last 20 years, really. Um, and I, I know he'll be stoked with with their win. But uh, look, it was good. It was a shame it did blow out because people will look at that margin and say, oh, it was a 74-point um, blowout and it wasn't really much of a, a great game to watch. But that first two and, a, two and a half to three quarters was some of the best grand final football I think I've ever seen. It was just epic. It was fantastic. Yeah, it was um, it was one hell of a show after a sort of the fifteen minute mark of the third term. Uh, Christian Jolly from Champion Data, you were busy working away throughout the game, and you got some explaining to do later on, I believe, because there was a controversial statistical call uh, that cost Christian Petrarca a record. Uh, yeah, um, we can touch on that a bit later, but I'll <laughs> I'll put the qualifier out there. There is a still there's still plenty of records he broke in that grand final, so I think he's uh, he's safe and sound, but. Jake summed it up perfectly. I think, yeah, that, that was an awesome grand final, but I felt like it was um, very much in line with the way the season went. I mean, Melbourne, if you look back across the season, were the best team in it. They were challenged by a few teams for a few few rounds here and there, which the Bulldogs challenged them for, you know, two and a half quarters. But in the end, they ran away with the season and the game and the cup and deservedly so. Absolutely. And we've got uh, another member of the ESPN stable joining us for his ESPN footy podcast debut. Jared Barker, welcome to the fold. Not a bad time to make your podcast debut, if I do say so myself. Bit of Jake well, Bowie about the way you've come in and oh, just sort of... Right at the Jordan areas. <laughs> <laughs> he's been subbed, but at least he's been subbed in. Uh, Jared yeah, Barker, welcome. No, thanks, mate. No, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to be making a little bit of a late season cameo. Do a James Jordan, as you said, swoop in late and take some of the glory after the job that you guys have done all year. But yeah, also, I guess you're all Blues fans, aren't you? So I thought I'd come in and offer up a little bit of club support diversity to the podcast as well. But no, yeah, what a season and, and what a game it was on the weekend. Looking forward to dissecting it all with you all. Yeah, a uh, big Pies fan you are, although you did tip Carlton would uh, finish top four this season. So maybe you are a bit of a Blues apologist. He tips, he tips Carlton <laughs> top four every season. He's more of a Carlton <laughs> fan than I am these days. <laughs> Uh, gents, before we get cracking, we're going to look at some uh, statistical bits and pieces from the grand final. We're going to look forward to next year uh, and we're going to play another round of justified hype and hyperbole. But before we do, anything you noticed from the grand final? Something a bit quirky, something a bit different, something we might gloss over, Jake? I'll leave the quirkiest stuff to you because I know you always look for the, <laughs> the double posters and the, all that sort of stuff. But the thing I was sort of just having a look at after the game, and I, I was just thinking before we started that 12 months ago, there's something we noticed was... Uh, when Lee Matthews gave Nathan Broad, I think he gave him two votes in the Norm Smith medal and he, he got the player wrong. Um, but I was surprised that the Bont didn't get a vote. If, you had, if you'd said after he kicked that third goal and the Bulldogs looked like they were going to start pulling away, that the Bont would not get poll one Norm Smith medal vote, you would have thought, what the hell has happened here? 
But he didn't. He didn't poll a single vote. I, I think Caleb Daniel got one, but I think it was quite unanimous that it was Petrarca three, Fritch two, and Oliver one. So, uh, yeah, surprised that he didn't get one. But it's it's funny how how that sort of works. Yeah, it is um, because he probably would have thought. Uh, I mean, I don't know how many times the Norm Smith changed hands, but it was hand passed around yeah. a bit there for a bit, especially towards the middle of the game. I think. At one point, Caleb Daniel was the favourite at halftime, had 26 touches. And then, as you say, the Bond probably did uh, did go in front because of the, you know, the, the impact when he, he had. Yep. him back into it. Oliver was good early. Petrarca obviously good throughout. And then Bailey Fritch threw a spanner in the works with his six goals. So it could have gone a few different ways. Well, I think the right man at the end of the day, though, did get the award. doesn't matter Absolutely. where anyone else comes. Uh, Christian, you, uh, you took a statistical look at the game. Anything you noticed that sort of jumps out at you? Uh, well, cover the stats later, but no, I'm probably a little bit of a, I'm a little bit of a hidden umpire fan, I think. So one little thing I noticed, I, I didn't notice that someone was called, it was called out to me, but I do uh, give a shout out for it. No recalled bounces in the grand final. So really, there's one for you. So you record them? Are they recorded? Uh, well, we sort of like we we have it as a double bounce. So because they throw it up for the second one, we'll, we'll have a bounce and a throw up. But I mean, I don't have a yeah, I don't have a column in any sort of stat table, but they're, they're in the system that we could pull out. Um, but yeah, they're not sort of a stat that we look at. We sort of, we do look at, you know, hit out success rate at a bounce compared to a throw up for teams and rucks. And throw up. Like that. But uh, another, another one, um, yeah, outside of the grand final, just, uh, yeah, firming probably for a number one draft pick, Jason Horn Francis, just a massive, again, we cover all the state leagues and uh, we talk about Petrarca's game shortly, but yeah, for a young kid, um, you know, you're going to compare him to the track. Well, he, yeah, 24 touches, 11 clearances, uh, three out of his team, six goals. This isn't a losing side as well. 18 contested possessions. Um, yeah, four tackles, 10 score involvements. He just did everything. So that was a, a huge performance by him on the weekend. Uh, our good friend, Chris Dory, who does a lot of draft work for us, is very excited by the prospect of Jason Horn Francis. And Jake, will probably have him on the podcast in coming weeks as the draft approaches. Absolutely. And I think he's actually going to be writing a piece for us in the coming weeks on something along the lines of who really is the number one pick. Um, there's been Jecture, a lot of talk about, about Nick Dacos, but I think, as you say, um, it, it looks like he's starting to pull clear after some of his more recent performances. JB, anything grab your attention from the grand final or its aftermath? Uh, yeah, well, speaking of aftermath, so watching the game back, I noticed a couple of things. I, I know we'll touch on the grand final and dissect it a little bit more um, shortly, but just how astonishing that Melbourne comeback was. In the last little bit of that third quarter, I looked at their last three goals. So with less than a minute to go, they were winning by six points. The, it was we'll set up for a grandstand finish. From Christian Petrarca's dribbler in the pocket to the next two goals, it was three goals with three kicks, pretty much. Christian, correct me if I'm wrong, but watching back, there might have been a little ricochet off Jack Viney out of one of those resulting clearances, but it was three goals from three kicks, which watching it back, I didn't actually realise. That's outrageous. <laughs> when I was watching the game, it's just truly astonishing. Um, but something else in the first quarter, Cody Waitman flew for a mark deep on the goal line. I don't know if you if you all remember, it's pretty early in the game. Slammed himself into the goalpost and then landed very heavily into the turf. This is a guy that was coming off a concussion. Don't think he was concussion tests. Um, and we all know he was struggling a little bit for the rest of the game. It's fair to say he didn't have the impact that Doggies fans or 
the dogs in general would have hoped that he would have had. So not sure, I'm, I'm not going to say that the dogs medicos threw Judy a care out the window here, but did they not notice it or, yeah, just watching it back, he wasn't, didn't look no, dazed I, from the impact, but it's something that I noticed. Why wasn't he tested for concussion? Yeah, I remember I remember the incident you're talking about. I, I don't know. I, I can't say I don't know if he was or wasn't, but yeah, he did he look it's an interesting point because he did seem out of a little out of sorts. Um don't know. We I don't wish I had the answer. Good picker. Well, I don't I'm not gonna say it's the reason that he had no impact on the game, but just something that Well, you I have thought, done. Well, <laughs> <laughs> throwing barbs at his podcast debut uh i like it yeah christian mine's kind of i've got two uh, as i sometimes tend to do but christian mine's along the same uh wavelength as yours and my something i noticed is that i didn't notice the umpires during the grand final uh, and i think that that's um on, on the sports biggest day too easily things can kind of get derailed pretty quickly but i thought for the most part the three umpires that uh, we're in charge of the whistle on the day were pretty good. And there were, as you say, not many or no mistakes in the center bounce, but in terms of actually making decisions, there wasn't any time I felt where I was thinking, Oh, that's a, that's a shocker or, or there's a, a big blue. So I think you've got to give credit to the AFL because they ended up getting the three uh, correct men on the day uh, with the ball in their hands at the start of each quarter. Oh, and my second one, uh, was there a little bit of shade thrown by the D's in the wash up to uh, the the post-match celebrations to the dogs there. Because if you remember after the preliminary finals, the Bulldogs, there was a video of them singing and chanting with a few beers, um, that Freed from Desire song from back in the late 90s, which is uh, it's always a, goes down well at, at parties. But then after the grand final, the Ds were also videoed singing along and chanting to that very same song in the middle of Optus Stadium. And I just wonder, am I reading too much into that? Or did, was there a bit of shade thrown? JB, you're sort of looking at me like you know what I'm talking about. It was absolutely intentional, and I'm all about it. <laughs> a bit more shade, a bit more, um, I don't know. Well, you've just won a grand final by 75-odd points. You might as well celebrate and, and, and rub it into the opponents. But, yeah, something we don't see in footy too often and maybe something we need to see a bit more of, Jake. I think so. You know, I'm just thinking, I'm surprised none of us mentioned that Max Gorn shot that wasn't even reviewed. Well, yeah, that's interesting. And here's my thought on this, right? Um, the angle that we have from the, 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 the behind the player uh, that Channel 7 had and the angles that we've seen on social media from behind the goals, they're not perfect. So you're never going to get the perfect straight down the line look and yeah. you're never going to know where but the we, ball but is. But all our camera angles, all the camera angles they have, look at the ones that we always used to look at on the goal line that weren't, weren't ever straight. But the, but the biggest issue I have with, I don't care if they, if they give it a behind or a goal, it doesn't matter. But the fact that it wasn't looked at to me is like this whole thing, the whole review system was brought in literally four grand finals after what happened with Nick Rewalt and they didn't even do it when they had the opportunity. I thought Jake, I was stunned by that. Jake, what would the camera angles that Channel 7 have have shown us any differently? But it would have call, given... I'm call not, would have but, but it would have stood anyway. Yeah, but you, it's easy to say that now when you've seen them, but they didn't check them. Uh, I'm, I'm trusting uh, a goal umpire who's a professional in a grand final who's right underneath the, the flight, flight of the ball than I am from some dodgy camera angle from some bloke holding an iPhone in row ZZ. Well, but that doesn't make any sense. So you're, you're not, you're not going to trust... You're, you're saying the umpires will never get it wrong. Well, no, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that there's a reason he didn't even try to review it. It's because he was confident. I think the it. fact that the AFL hasn't 
come out with any clarity. It tells us everything that we need to know. You just got to trust the umpire's well, judgment. Drives me, the thing that drives me nuts about this is had Melbourne lost by four points, then every single person would be talking about this. But now, now we forget about it. And there will come a time, whether it's next year, the year after, or in five years' time, where there is an incident like this that isn't checked and it does cost a team the grand final. My point is, I don't care if it's a point or a goal. You could probably say, yeah, look, there probably isn't enough evidence to overturn it. But why did they not look at it? It was too close to not look at and you look at some of the other ones that they check and it's like come on seriously you're what, checking that what's the point of having the goal umpire if you're not going to back them into call for a review if they feel like they need it but we see it all throughout the year where they call for they call for reviews on someone's marked the ball like two meters over the line and they're checking it it's like <laughs> well really he's the best the best jake he made he made it to the grand final that goal umpire he must have been very confident that it, it was a behind and it sailed over the post well the, the fact that you can still look at it, the replays, and people are split 50-50 on whether it's a goal or a behind. Parallax makes, error. Makes me think. Just raise the height of the goalpost. Do what Eddie Maguire floated after the bloody Anthony Rocket debacle in, in O2. <laughs> raise the goalpost and Ray, nothing to well, talk about. Yeah, if, if they go too high, it's a no score. It's out on the full. All right, <laughs> let's get into go, it. Put, put a bar on it and it has to go under. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's get into the main body of the podcast because there's plenty to dissect. Christian, uh, you cast your eyes over everything very closely and with a statistical slant on things. Look, a question I have for you is pretty basic. What happened after the 15-minute mark of the third quarter? Because if you split... That Melbourne game into, into two halves and you go from well, two, well, two half, half, you know, almost halves. The 15 minute mark of the third term after that. And then before that, they're two completely different games. So what happened? It was, well, I think, yeah, in terms of what happened from that 15 minute mark onwards and it was just perfect footy. I think um, in that time, I think, yeah, Melbourne had about 26 chains started and scored about 18 times from them. So they'll just, you know, they scored, um, six goals directly from center bounces and just everything they did just turned. So, um, yeah, I mean, we can get to that later, but it was, it was just, it, it turned into the perfect footy, but yeah, sort of broken the game down. There's, there's probably three ways to break the game down. I've looked at the first half. I mean, went in at halftime tight grand final was all set up for an awesome second half. Uh, and you speak about the 15 minute mark of the third quarter onwards being Melbourne's time, but even that first 15 minutes of the second quarter, uh, sorry, third quarter, Quarter was probably where the Bulldogs really started to well, take control of the game in terms of they had possession of the ball and really could have, you know, I think they could have swayed the outcome of the game more in that time than they really did. So just going back to the first half, um, so the Bulldogs, again, won a lot more won a lot more of the ball than Melbourne. They had 22 more contested possessions, 49 more uncontested possessions, um, you know, almost 70 more disposals. But the inside 50s were even. And scoring shots for 15 each. So again, going into halftime, Bulldogs have probably done, you know, everything they could to try to get momentum on the scoreboard, had a, had a lot more of the ball, but hadn't really put, yeah, put their foot down. And looking at forward half scores as well, Melbourne had scored 3-8 from sort of forward half clearances or Bulldogs turning the ball over in their back half and the Bulldogs 5-2. So again, accuracy was helping the Bulldogs um, on the scoreboard. So um, again, came out at, at a halftime. And that first 15 minutes of the third quarter, um, yeah, Bulldogs just dominated. Um, they started with the pressure. I mean, their pressure factor in that time, and I think everyone's seen the pressure gauge by now on Fox footy, 200 being a good number, 220 being sort of through the roof, 185, 180 being around comp average. Their pressure factor in that first 15 minutes was 240. So they were just smashing Melbourne at the ball. Melbourne was at 182. So their, their pressure was 
around average when Bulldogs had the ball, but Bulldogs' pressure was through the roof, um, and then they just dominated possession. So they had 30, 38 more disposals in that time then. And, but, again, it was something I sort of brought up on last week's pod that they played twice earlier this year. Uh, the first game, Bulldogs sort of lost by dominating. They had 120-odd marks in that game but lost to Melbourne. Um, in the second game, they took 35 or 40 fewer marks in their first game and ended up beating Melbourne. So just being more direct with the ball and not playing around with it as much. In that first 15 minutes of the third quarter, took 25 marks. Melbourne took three. Uh, I think they had 68 disposals for only six turnovers. So being very, very careful with the ball, the Bulldogs, and being very good on pressure. Mm. But two goals to zero on the scoreboard is sort of is sort of what they got in that time. Seven inside 50s to three. So again, dominated territory, but put two goals on the scoreboard in that time. And then as you uh, sort of alluded to, Matt, the, the you know, pendulum just swung com- completely in Melbourne's favour. And, it, you know, it took a couple of, you know, individual acts and brilliance. But from then on, it just it just snowballed. And, you know, Melbourne's ended up finishing with the most goals ever from centre bounces across the grand final. Um, you know, Petrarca had 15 score involvements for the game. 12 of them came after that 15-minute mark onwards. So. Is that a grand final record? Yeah, yeah. So most score involvements, and um, you know, we can touch on his forty disposals, which ended up being thirty nine. But I'll also throw up that he had, yeah, he had forty possessions, so he had the ball forty <laughs> times because the disposal that was taken away it was sort of a tackle that the ball spilt out. Um, so he still had the ball more than Simon Black did. So he had, you know, a record. I know we don't talk about possessions as much as we do disposals, but he had the ball in his hands still a record amount of times of any grand final, most score involvements, most meters gained. Um, of any grand final. So think back to Johannesson and Hawley off the halfback flank and what they were doing. He was doing all these metres gained in the forward half. And how, on the scoreboard. how long after a game does something like that get corrected? Like how, how far behind is the, 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 the guys at champion data going through and saying, Oh, that was actually not a hand pass, but he took possession of the ball. Like yeah. when, when did that happen? So, I mean, things can be continually edited throughout the game. So even at a, at a boundary throw in or a goal or something we're editing. So there's, there's continual editing. Uh, but a game, yeah, pretty much has always been complete. We've got 20 minutes till after the final siren uh, to complete a game. On average, it's usually 10 to 15. Um, so, yeah, it was just one of those ones that happened. I think it was about the seven and a half minute mark of the fourth quarter. Um, it was on the far wing. And, yeah, we'd reviewed everything else. And I don't think it was the last thing we reviewed, but uh, we went back to look at that play just to see if he did get the handball out or whether I think it was Lockie Hunter um, applied a tackle. And going back... And looking at the vision, you could see from slowing it down, his fist missed the ball. Like the tackle made it sort of bounce off his chest. He went mm. to handball it. He missed the ball and the ball spills out. And it was funny because even on the co- on the commentary call, I think BT's counting him down and he says something about it. It's, it's his 34th disposable, but he didn't dispose of it. Mm. So, um, yeah, it was just, it was quite... Funny to me because we're, we're probably uh, a goal. <laughs> yeah, well, we're we're insulated in the bunker too, so we knew the change we were making. We saw that he went down from forty to thirty nine. No one was across at that moment that it was a grand final record. Um, we probably didn't even know that everyone was sort of talking about it and already seen the the forty. So we sort of mentioned that oh, he's going from forty down to thirty nine, but it was something that always happens. But yeah, um, yeah, heard plenty about it on Sunday. That's for sure. Well, it's funny because you're right. It's it's something that does happen for every game. People at your offices go back and, and they say, well, actually, let's review this part of the game or, or let's have a look at this. Um, this you know, It might have been a, a tough contest and someone's missed a hand pass or something. So it's not like it was just unique to the grand final. It's just because it was such an extraordinary circumstance that everyone seems to have taken notice and, uh, and, and found out the, the hard way that uh, you shouldn't always just go with the first time. You've got to wait for it to be confirmed and, and for the news to be uh, confirmed and true. Correct, Punters yeah. will be well aware that you 
you're never comfortable <laughs> until you, your players had one more than what you've got them because you you've, they do they do take one away every now and then. <laughs> you disappear, and, and and again, it, it's I've been working for the champion since 2002, and we all comment on it. What's a handball these days? It is the game is becoming even more harder. Just to you know, in terms of black and white and the grayness in a disposal. I mean, this one was pretty clear that he didn't uh, handball it, but yeah, it's probably been the last two or three years where we're going back and having to check a lot more handballs because I think... Uh, but that's a good point a because if the umpire is not calling it a throw, if they, there's, you know, we see it all the time now, these little quick quick little handballs slash throws. You can, if the umpire hasn't called it, you can't call it a throw, can you? Unless we can, again, unless the vision proves that we can. So the umpire can get it wrong because he's only got one chance to look at it. And that's why we can go back and we've got the 20 minutes, we've got quarter time, we can go back on the vision. So we'll call it a handball live jot it down and if we can see on the vision uh, and there was a famous one in last year's grand final Dangerfield. Um, I think he got a score assist from it at the top of the goal square. He sort of got it and he just shoveled it out like that. Yeah. I called handball. That to Guthrie? It was a, yeah, it was a handball for probably five minutes or maybe two minutes. We saw it on the replay. I'm like, can't give that a handball no matter what. Like, it, it just wasn't a handball. So that disappeared as well. So um, you spoke before about how um, the demons after that point in the third term were just able to sort of waltz out of the center circle and and get into the into their fifty and, and score from from center clearances constantly. Uh, we talked about this last week with the dogs being that they're not a they're not a strong tap and clearance team, but they try and get defensive pressure on the opposition midfield, and it just seems like at that point. Um, they were unable to do anything to stop the, the demons and, and the fact that Oliver and Petrarca were just able to get free and, and get clearances and just move the ball forward. Um, Jared, I know that we were talking uh, yesterday when we were looking at our scoreworm on ESPN.com and that period when uh, the D scored three goals in about 40 seconds, it's just, it's just a line that goes up. It's a vertical yeah. line. It was just domination. It's an 18 point line. <laughs> and, and the dogs couldn't do what you said that they needed to do, Christian. And that's get delay on the ball in the mid middle, because once they get delay on the ball in the middle, they can force a turnover and then get the clearance themselves. And they just couldn't do it. Yeah, and even in the first half, they were bulldogs. That is were negative four for clearances. So that, that game was there. They weren't, they weren't relying on that. They were able to win the ball back and maintain possession. And um, yeah, but it just it was so much like, and again, to go back to the preliminary final, what Melbourne did to Geelong, no one could have seen that coming of how much they waltzed out of it. They just turned this on, you know, after, you know, after 45 minutes of the Bulldogs sort of holding on, the damn wall just broke for Melbourne. I was going to say, they did this in all three of their finals for periods where they just looked utterly dominant, waltzing out of the, out of the centre like they were playing under 16s or something. It was just, it's no disrespect to the opposition, but there were, and it wasn't the whole game, but there might've been a couple of periods in each game for a couple of minutes where it was just so easy. And they, they just looked like they were going to, they were going to win the flag. They must be one center line, which looked at the six, six, six rules and thought, how good's this? Because we'll be able to, you know, leverage Gorn, Oliver, Petrarca, Viney, whoever you want to throw in there, uh, get the clearance, get the, the ball moving. And, and you're right, in, in a space of minutes, it can just turn just like that. Yeah, I think so Viney it's pretty- is, it's a good shout on Viney. I think he's he's so underrated in that midfield. Like everyone will talk about Gorn and Petrarca and Oliver, but Viney adds that that next, that different dimension to that. From the that first contest. Ball. Yeah. He was he, right. He's he right in that it. toughness, the tackling, the contested side. You know, and and it lets, but but at the same time, I mean, it's not as if Oliver and and Petrarca aren't contested players, but he just provides a bit more of that grunt inside. Um, uh, they're scary. They're re- they they are a really scary team. And you talk even about- the influence of um, 
Luke Jackson. We can't undersell that either. I know it's come out in the last day or two, Max Gorn went to the bench and told Simon Goodwood, now nah, Luke Jackson's the best matchup for Steph Martin here. Uh, Jackson goes into the middle and they just dominate those clearances. Um, I think his influence on the game was also just massive. What does that say about Gorn? As a leader? Yeah. I mean, um, I like it. I think some people might say, like, you know, he's... He... Well, we, we've talked to him on Captain's Day, Jake, and the, the overwhelming thing that I get from him, whether it's, you know, on the record or just chatting to him before we, we flick the recorders on, is that he's quite he's real. He just speaks real. He's not trying to bullshit. He's not trying to sugarcoat. He's not trying to... Um, you know, just trot out the same regurgitated lines that a lot of footy players do. He's always quite um, circumspect and honest and raw. And the fact that he can do that, Jared, um, and as a leader, it's it's little wonder that, um, you know, they're a premiership side and, and have broken a drought that has, has gone on for, you know, nearly six decades. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, he couldn't replicate his heroics of that prelim final despite all you nuffies calling him calling it the greatest game and he's the greatest player and no five goal game again for max gorn do, but we do, do like we do like him and look do you dream at, do you dream uh, at night and, and do you dream of ruckman do they just haunt <laughs> your dreams because every week you find a way to bring up the your ruckman theories and how they're not worth the the paper that they're written on but if jake could make an all-australian team without a ruckman he'd do it hundred yeah, percent it'd be a, i have a, a done it team of six foot soldiers is what it would be just, I, I, just a team of mids. <laughs> <laughs> Christian, um, did the team, sorry, did the game, uh, speaking of teams, did the game follow the patterns we thought they would last week? I mean, we, we said last week that it probably would be tight because they score uh, in similar patterns and the way that they get the ball out of the midfield is slightly different, but they're quite combative as, as two midfield groups and, and they should, you know, it should be a battle. Did we find that at least in the first half that they played out that way or did you sort of see things develop as the game went on? Yeah, I saw it definitely in the first half and that's why I thought the Bulldogs were sort of poised quite well because I thought they did need to be a bit more in control of the ball, the Bulldogs. We knew they were probably going to lose um, the clearances, the contested possessions were probably going to be, you know, expected to be even, but they ended up, you know, a little bit on top of that going in at, at halftime as well. So, yeah, at halftime, it sort of seemed like, you know, Melbourne were probably, you know, a little bit behind, but not out of the game. As I said, the scoring shots inside 50s ended up being even. So that was, you know, going to plan sort of probably for the Bulldogs. But as I said, there was that little bit of, to me, in that first 15 minutes of the third quarter for just how much ball the Bulldogs had for how little score, um, it took my mind back to the round 19 game and I just thought, well, yeah, if Melbourne can sort of get a run on here, you know, Melbourne, you need to kick two or three in five or 10 minutes and, you know, game on. And what did they do? They kicked, you know, 16 in 30 minutes. But, um, yeah, you, you, as I said, from the 15-minute mark onwards, I don't think anyone could have could have called that from any of the predictions last week. But the first half was, yeah, definitely sort of playing out the way probably thought it would. So how far away were the doggies from winning this game, do you think? Because is it fair to uh, say they're not a 74 point? <laughs> but are they a 74 point worse team than Melbourne? Because I really don't think they are. No, well, Jake, and, I think oh, we discussed this afterwards uh, to both of you guys is we had a little we had a little chat after the game. We, I think we agreed that it was probably the best 74 point game we've seen in some time ever. Yeah. I, and the thing is, and I, I said this after the 2019 grand final, the the Giants were never 15 goals worse, but this is what happens in grand finals. When you when a, when one team knows that they've lost and the other team knows that they've won halfway through the third quarter or, or at three-quarter time, it's 
it's it's gonna blow out. Yeah, one of the one of the so stuff what, that I what, came across in, in that in that final, you know, 40 minutes that we're talking about, I think 12 Melbourne players kicked a goal. So it was just it was, it was just the run on party time, flow on effect, bulldog, you know, got the tell there wasn't it wasn't a you know, it wasn't you're not playing for percentage anymore. I know like which way, which well Tom McDonald after the siren. I yeah, what was that about? <laughs> I called percentage for that one, like having a shot after the siren. But you you're right, 74 points, it should be, you know. You walk off the field embarrassed. I mean, I'm sure the Bulldogs are disappointed, but they can't be embarrassed for, you know, one of, you know, as I said, more than half of the grand final that they played was was good footy. I know it's hypothetical, but what what does another goal or two do to that grand final? So when the Bulldogs are winning by 19 points, uh, don't quote me on this, but is it 23 points is the biggest three-quarter time margin in a grand final that's ever been overcome? I think that's only happened once. Hmm. And only a handful of times has a team trailed at three-quarter time in a grand final, and I mean a handful, and then come back and won that game. So mm. the D's winning by four or leading by four goals at three-quarter time, the game was already over. That last quarter is an absolute throwaway. So with the dogs up by 19 points, what does an extra goal or maybe two goals do to that game? What mm. happens to the mentality of the Melbourne players? Do the dogs run away with the momentum? And do Melbourne capitulate like the dogs did? Well, we've seen, we've seen previously this year and last year that teams can get bigger swings. So since that 666 rule came in, teams can get bigger swings and, mm. and run-ons, if you want to call them that. So I, I know that, you know, you talk about in history, the biggest three-quarter time margin being overrun is, is 23 points uh, or, or close to that or whatever it might be. But if the, the rules change at this, a certain point, which is only two years ago, so the, the sample size is quite small. So you never know. The way that Petrarca and Oliver and, and Gorn and Viney were just sort of streaming out of the middle, you couldn't rule them out kicking seven or eight in the last quarter and, and running away with it, even if the dogs were up by four. But even in the first quarter, I think it, right at the end of the first quarter when the demons were dominating, was it Brown or McDonald? Someone had a snap from like twenty out, and and it, they just missed, and that would have given that would have extended the margin into like twenty five or something, and that could have then got started to get ugly early. So both of them kind of had that twenty point lead at various stages, which which is manageable. But when it starts getting closer to thirty. In a grand final, all of a sudden you think, shit, we're five goals down here. So, pardon my French. <laughs> we're going we're to have to put the explicit sign up now. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> or is that it? Uh, that's lost it. your train of thought. Hey, I, no, I, I was going to say, I'm, I'm a big believer. Just one more, sorry. I, I'm a big believer in footy being as big a mental game as it is physical. And that's why I bring up, I, I wonder what it does to. Melbourne, the players know they're aiming to break a 57-year drought. They know well and truly what, what's on the line. I just wonder what goes through their head. If they're trailing by 25 to 30 points instead of mm. 19 points, I really do wonder what goes through their head. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But, the, but having said that, that was, the, that was when we had Dunkley on last week on the podcast. That was the reason why I was on Melbourne to win because of that. The, people tend to think it's pressure in a negative way, but I think it's a good way to motivate you to win. And no matter what you say the Bulldogs didn't have that 57-year drought. They won it five years ago. So you just don't have that same hunger. That's why you got to give credit to the Richmonds and Hawthorns and 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 I know Matt's laughing because I, I... But you got to give credit to these teams that can come back year after year, and not just in the AFL, in any sport, and continually be at the top because it's so hard to recreate that motivation to win again once you've already won. And that's why we see teams win a flag and they do kind of regress a bit, or even teams that get to a grand final and regress because it not have they haven't won, but they've it's the the emotional the 
it's so draining from an emotional point of view that it does take a lot out of you. Mm. Um, speaking of, of emotions, there would have been uh, all across the country, D's fans, players, staff, emotions were running high because, it, because as you said, Jake, it's a, it's a 57 year drought. Um, it, it meant a lot to a lot of people, Neil Danaher, like there are just so many stories here or there, but um, even on the field, there have been some great stories. I mean, where do we even begin to look at some of like some of the best stories? Because we got Ben Brown, who was who came across from North Melbourne. We had um, Stephen May, who came down from Gold Coast, was out of shape and 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 was you know probably fighting for his career at one point. We had Lever leaving Adelaide when they were you know quote at the peak of their powers, and and Tex Walker sort of said you might live to regret this. It's it's. There's a lot going on. So where do you start? Like, where, what's the best story to come out of this grand final? Well, they're all good ones. I like, I do like the Stephen May. You made a good, good comparison, uh, not compar- like a parallel sort of between his time when he was out of shape and drinking a beer um, at Gold Coast, and then then he was sculling a beer after the after they won the grand final. It was a nice sort of contrast there. But um, I, I I really like the story of um, Jake Bowie. Bowie or Bowie? What are we going with? Here we go with Bowie. Bowie. Um, hasn't played in a loss yet. And sometimes players... Cut, you got to, I mean, Nathan Jones has got to be just biting his tongue, thinking, oh, God, this kid's come in. But sometimes these kind of young guys come in and they just sort of, you know, they, they're, they're filling a role. And But I tell you what, he looks so comfortable. He looks really, really good. Um, and I, look, it, it's a good story. You are going to get that. And a lot of sport is about timing. Timing is everything in sport. Um, had Nathan Jones been 15 years younger, had he been drafted last year, then maybe he plays in the grand final. Maybe maybe he goes... We always said, had Cade Simpson been a Hawthorne player instead of a Carlton player, he probably plays in four flags. So timing is everything, uh, and not just for, for players, but with injuries too. I mean, mm. does, does Josh Bruce not get injured? Maybe the Bulldogs win. I mean... It's it's all it all does come down to Tommy, and then there are a lot of good stories, but there also are a lot of hard luck stories. I think Adam Trelaw is one that springs to mind. He's now played in two grand final losses with two different teams. So, you know, on the other side of it, you got to you got to feel for players on the other on the on the losing side. JB, the story of the uh, the game for you. I like Tom McDonald's story. Um, I think he was the main man for Melbourne at least early in the season. Uh, as their big key forward. And this is the guy that was um, openly on the trade table at the end of last season. So, Hmm. um, yeah, I I love the Tom McDonald story, the the infamous diet of steak only, is it? The protein diet. Um, (laughs) I thought he had an awesome season for the Ds, really. Uh, When Ben Brown and Sam Wiedemann were sort of languishing in the VFL, it was Tom McDonald that he was the one that never got dropped. He was the one that... um, just worked hard and never really gave up. And now he's a premiership player, not even 12 months after. He probably thought he wouldn't be a Melbourne player. So um, kudos to Tom McDonald. The um, the juxtaposition between him and his all-meat diet, Jake, and then Ben Brown, who's a, a vegan. I was going to say, that's what I was going to say. I didn't realize that Tom McDonald only eats. He only eats red meat. Apparently, yeah. Oh, well, what's like that. I wonder what his bathroom bloody schedule is like. <laughs> <laughs> Christian, any thoughts? Uh, best stories? Uh, yeah, one Bailey Fritz for one for me. I mean, he won one of my favorite awards, um, in football, which is the uh Fothergill Round Medal in the VFL for best under I don't know what the age gap is, but best under 22 player in the VFL or something. And I think the last 11 of the last 12 winners have all gone on to have you know 
being drafted and had okay careers, but yeah, to finish with six goals, but just that whole fact he was from Casey internally developed um, was just, you know, we see it with all the clubs. They all have their, um, their reserves clubs and they all have their top up players playing with those. So I think he was a top up player with them for two or three years and six goals in the grand final, most grand final since Tony Lockett and most goals in the grand final since, yeah, Tony Lockett in 1996. So there's a name to be compared against um, from the background he's had. But another little one for me is Simon Goodwin. Um, obviously, and again, I'll, I'll give a little shout out to myself, picking him to uh, <laughs> picking Melbourne to finish our top four at the start of the year. And I think I might have said, you know, a big chance to finish number one. But again, it was it was the Bomber Thompson. It was the Damien Hardwick at Simon Goodwin's retribution for the, the, the club, you know, the club gets rewarded for sticking fat with him. But from what he's been through, the review, the questioning of him, um, but so disappointed we didn't get to hear him speak on the night because for me he was one of the one of the big stories from it um even the story that was you know raised last week from just in his playing career um the gambling sort of story that came up and he was almost banned from footy and he's you know ended up turning it from that to being a coach to becoming a, a premiership coach now so i think yeah his story is a good one too Mm. Yeah, uh, endless number of stories that the Jack Viney in the in the post match interview he said his first game he played he was an eighty point loss the second game was a hundred point loss and it's just unbelievable now he's a, a premiership player and 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 you know wearing a premiership medallion around his neck and he had a FaceTime with his old man and just the emotions you can sort of see um, building up you know, on his face and 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 it's just yeah some some amazing sort of stuff and I must um, admit we by the time we finished up working on. Well, in Sunday morning, in the end, the the early hours of the morning, we kind of sat back and I, I looked at the the ESPN AFL website and how we had all the, the Melbourne photos of them with the cup, and I just thought, are they really premiers? <laughs> like, <laughs> have Melbourne actually won a flag? And and then it really sunk in that after St Kilda, Carlton now has the longest premiership drought in the AFL. <laughs> Somehow to get the blues into the podcast. Uh, very good, very good. Of course. <laughs> um, yeah. So let's let's move on for the grand final because uh, it is already Tuesday. Uh, by the time you listen to this, it could be later. Uh, we're going to look forward to 2022, Jake we're, and JB. We had our way too early predictions published on the weekend on Sunday, which is a, a very on-brand ESPN column where we basically we went through. We we did our ladders, we did our premier, our runner-up, our wooden spooner, our Brownlow medal winner, and uh, a big surprise. Um, so we thought we might go through that and have a bit of fun and, and have a chat about that on the podcast. Any big call that you want to make going into to next season that we can remind you of uh, come, you know, mid-June, mid-July, when it, when it all falls apart, Jared? Oh, well, I mentioned this in, the, in our two early predictions. I think there's going to be um, a massive exodus of coaches. I don't think Adam Simpson, I don't think Leon Cameron, I don't think Chris Scott will last beyond next year. And I think Alistair Clarkson will coach the Gold Coast Suns. So that's probably my big call. But another one that I will mention is, and I know you guys are going to hit me through the screen here, but Carlton to finish in the top eight, finally for you boys. (laughs) Um, I just think it's time to strike, in all honesty. Uh, So the Blues, in the games that they won this year, they they looked good. Uh, they hardly got smashed. I know also they also lost to also lost to up. North and Gold Coast, mind you. <laughs> <laughs> I know Port touched them up. Uh, that was late in the season when finals weren't really a reality anymore. They were out of the equation, but I think they've got a great spine. I think they've laid the foundations there um, for a finals team that are ready to strike. I think all that needs fixing really is a little bit of defensive stability. Uh, whether Michael Voss, I mean, he'll know that he'll come in and um, tweak a little bit, but. I think that's all that needs fixing, really. I think George Hewitt comes in and provides that two-way running defensive sort of midfielder that they need. A fit Caleb Marchbank comes back and 
if Adam Cherry comes in, he will complement the midfield as well. And I just think they've got a great spine. So for me, it's Carlton to be the biggest riser. We'll get you on the podcast every week next year, I think. That'd be good. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about Carlton's prospects. Christian, big call for you. Have you uh, cast your mind forward and thought of anything that uh, jumps out of you? I don't know. I might leave the uh, way too early embarrassing predictions to you guys. But one of the <laughs> things we've been throwing around in the office, just probably keep your eye on. So, again, I think it's across eight, eight of the last 10 years. Um Someone from outside the top eight has ended up in the top four. So either making a prelim, finishing top four, home and away. Um, and, a, you know, looking back at the teams that have done it, a good indication is their second half of the year, um, which, you know, looking at this year, round 13 onwards. So sort of, you know, popped up the form ladder of round 13 onwards this year and looked at the teams that didn't make finals that had a great sort of end of the season. Um, and St Kilda and Essendon are the two sort of teams that that pop out there for both, you know, percentages well over 100 uh, in that time so again yeah look for those two probably to um, you know have a chance to rise up the ladder and one of the another surprising one I, I saw was uh, Richmond were actually last in that time so it's not I think everyone sort of just penciled Richmond in for a top eight or even a, you know a lot of people might already pencil him in for a top four finish um, yeah Richmond is still just just a watch for me because it's not you know it's not a given that you just bounce back because I sort of said at the start of the pod uh, before the pod, the rest of the competition doesn't stand still. So it'll be interesting to see. Just you know, again, I'm not I'm not going to write Richmond off because um superstar team, but yeah, really interesting to see just how how far they can bounce back next year. Mm, that's interesting. The after round thirteen ladder might be a thing we take a look at next year as well. See if we can do some uh, predictions or or some other bits and pieces. Jake, big call from you. Uh, you know, I love the Brownlow Medal, so I'll tell you who who will win the medal next year. Um, and I will preface this by saying that I am a very negative Carlton supporter, as you can probably tell from what I've been saying and joking about Jared, but I think Sam Walsh will win the Brownlow next year. I really do. So he, he, he polled 30 votes, uh, in his third season. Now, Chris Judd did that in 2004 and he won the medal with 30 votes. It just shows how, how this, the bar has been raised now where 30 30 votes 10 years ago was a massive tally and it was a guaranteed medal. Now Walsh doesn't even get on the podium with 30. I think Carlton will be better next year. I think Carlton will win more games. Walsh, has his improvement year to year has been insane. I heard Patrick Cripps just talking about him, about not only how professional he is, I think we all kind of knew that from when he was... I remember speaking to him when he got drafted as a kid and he, you just could tell like not many, not many 18 year olds spoke the way he's, he spoke, but he's the way his body's getting better. The way he's, he went from being this kind of outside player to an inside player to an inside player who can kick goals to he, he he's just adding something every time he comes out to the field. And I really think he's going to take his game to another level next year and put himself in the conversation of, you know, the top five or six players in the league. Um, and there's no reason why I see him um, unable to go and win a Brownlow next year. He, he's my early tip to win it. Very good. I'm at odds with Jared because I think my big call uh, as part of ESPN's way too early predictions, which you can find at ESPN.com.au forward slash AFL, uh, was that the Cats would make another prelim and lose in another prelim. Uh, and I think that that's probably enough to keep Chris Scott in the position for at least one more year, but... Uh, should it be? Well, if the cats, it should the cats... no. You can't just make prelims for... If, if, if the Cats have made a prelim, let's just say, um, since their inception, let's just say it's 150 years. If they make a prelim for 150 years but lose 150 prelims in a row, they've got zero flags. <laughs> Think about that. 
Would you take that as a supporter? You always lose. Absolutely not. <laughs> well, then, um, you know, maybe in 2023 we see a change of coach. But, uh, yeah, I've got the Cats finishing in the top four again uh, as one last roll of the dice because... When's every... their last year? It's been their last year to strike for the last four years. Exactly. Years and, I've, and I've said that every single year. And every year they find a way to pull a rabbit. And by a rabbit, I mean someone well, like Jeremy Cameron. With, yeah. Out of, out of a hat and and challenge for one more year. So I think they'll challenge again. Uh, they'll give it a shake. But uh, I don't know. I just I'm just not sure I can see them being better than someone or a side like a Port Adelaide or a Brisbane, um, Melbourne. Obviously, do it going again and and a few other teams in the mix as well. Um, yeah, if you want to see our full way too early predictions again, like I said, head to the website. You can find them there. Thoughts on the fixture, guys, because the next season is going to be very interesting given we don't think COVID is going to be as big of a thing as it was in the previous two seasons. Touch on wood. Uh, some early <laughs> thoughts crossed. being that I can't see the AFL going back to releasing the full fixture in terms of dates and times uh, well in advance of the season. I can still see them implementing some sort of floating fixture. Um, I don't know. Is this, is this the way that... We're just going to see this happen for the rest of uh, our lives as footy fans, Jake. I'm torn with this because, on one hand, I like knowing the fixture in advance, so you can you can plan things. You know, you can if you're a fan and want to travel to a game. Yeah, yep. again, assuming you, you can travel, you can you can mark that in. You can make plans, all that sort of stuff. But on the other side, you know, you can't account for the fact that a game you think at the start of the season will be a prime time classic in round 13 turns out to be a dud. Um, so you need that flexibility. So I am torn. Maybe the, maybe the solution is to, to release in sort of four game block sort of things as the AFL has been doing, but I'm not overly bothered by it. I think there are big pros for, for doing it each, each way. In terms of logistics, Christian, how difficult is it as a company like Champion Data to organise? Well, uh, this year might have been a bit different, but to organise at ground callers and, and staffing, like how difficult is it when the fixtures only released, say, you know, three, four weeks in advance? Um, that, that, that's not too bad. I mean, a lot of our workers are casual. Um, as long as, you know, again, the, the states aren't stretched thin. So, you know, as long as there's not three games in Brisbane, in Cairns, Gold Coast and Brisbane on one weekend or something, we've done quite well. And again, I think, you know, I gave a shout out earlier on the pod to our 200 casual staff around the country that do sort of just just rock up and get the job done um, throughout these times. You know, we've had people having to travel from SA to Tassie because of Victorian border lockdowns to cover games and things like that. But now I'll do tell you on a, you know, one of the weeks this week was a Wednesday morning. I think one of the games times was released, so that that cuts it a bit short. But even then, we got it covered. So I think it was always the plan to release the full twenty three um, rounds of opponents, but then just to release four weeks blocks as we're talking. We've just had two, and that was I think announced before twenty twenty. Yeah, we just had two COVID interrupt seasons. So I think the AFL do have a plan of how to do a rolling fixture. Um, we just haven't been able to see it yet. But I do throw up, I, I just love that, as Jake said, you can't predict the game at the start of the year. It's going to be the blockbuster. You can't predict the game on Thursday night going into the round. It's going to be the blockbuster. So it's true. It was one of the rounds where, you know, everyone was cracking at what was on the Friday night. And I think Melbourne Hawthorne was on the Saturday night and it was a draw. And I was like, well, you could have put that on the Friday night and everyone would have said, don't put Melbourne Hawthorne on its first versus 15th. And that was the best game of the round. So you're never going to please everybody, but no, that's I true. think it's still a wait and see because I think the AFL, as I said, have got a plan. They just haven't been able to stick to at the moment. Speaking of times uh, and start times of games, we saw the well, the twilight start 
in West Australia and the, the evening start in uh, on the East Coast for the second year in a row. Uh, gents, Jared, did you have any thoughts now after having seen two grand finals at night? What are your thoughts? Uh, are you a traditionalist and want to see it back in the afternoon or, or are you a, a progressive and, and like the idea of a, a night grand final? Uh, you can call me a traditionalist. If, if it was my choice, I would say leave it at 2.30. Um, look, all the talk out of Optus Stadium was, you know, what a spectacle it was, um, all the lights, all the... The, the actual event, the, the pre-game entertainment, the halftime entertainment was great, and that's that's awesome. Um, I think the TV numbers were, were awesome as well, but how inflated are they because of the east coast of Australia, the majority of it being in lockdown? Um, I think naturally the, the viewer, viewership numbers are going to be higher. Um, I, I would have it in the afternoon. It's being in lockdown, I, I know probably for the rest of you guys, the... The hours and hours of waiting on on Saturday was an absolute killer. Waiting for that game to start, and um, yeah, I wouldn't want to do that again. I think it needs to stay in the afternoon. I can probably cop a twilight, and I think that's the way it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, the grand final is about the game. It's about the players. It's not about the entertainment. So, and I get that there's a commercial lure for the TV broadcast to, to have it at night, but it's about the game. It's about the players. It's not about the pregame entertainment. So yeah, if it was up to me, I'd, I'd leave it at two 30. Absolutely. Any objections to that? Because I'm a hundred percent behind what uh, Jared's saying. Uh, look, I, I don't want to go on about this because I've been talking about this for years. I prefer sport at night. I prefer all my sport at night. I prefer all my showpiece games at night. But I agree. I, look, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say it was great. But, but I think a big part of it is the fact we are in lockdown and we can't do anything. So we are sitting at home on our just twiddling our thumbs waiting for the game to start. Whereas in normal circumstances, you can do other stuff and actually have the game in the evening. But I, I, I tend to think now, we've seen them both. I, I do think a twilight could be the way to go. A twilight start on the East Coast, um, that, that sort of four somewhere between that 4, 440 time, you start in daylight, finish in the evening. And the other thing is the one problem with finishing so late is um, not that I, the players would really care if they finished at three in the morning, if they won a flag, but you want to give them a bit of time to like actually soak it in at the ground and, and celebrate rather. I, I, I always joke. I remember when Roger Federer won his 2017 Australian Open. He said, "Well, it's so late now. It's 2:30 in the morning. I, I'm going to bed. I'm not celebrating. So, give him a little bit more time." So, I don't think that was a problem for the D's players that I saw out. No, no maybe Perth. not the D's. But I, I, I'm starting to think, and this is from someone who's always been pushing for a night. I'm starting to think uh, a twilight might be the way to go. And I think it's best of both worlds that way. You don't have to wait so long, and you also get the. I think that spectacle of of having it at night and the crossover from daylight to, to, to nighttime would be, would be nice to see. Fair enough. Uh, justified hype or hyperbole, the segment where I'll say a statement, you guys tell me whether the hype is justified or I'm speaking in hyperbole. Jake, just while you're taking a glass of water, I'll go straight to you. Uh, if you're starting a team from scratch, you're taking Christian Petrarca as the first player every single time. Yeah, I think I am. Yep. Don't really know what else to say to that. I think he's been, and look, this isn't a this isn't a snap reaction, an overreaction to the grand final, rather. But I I just think he is now the best player in the league, um, and it's not just that he's the best and he's a thirty one year old player. He's twenty five, like he's he's just coming into his prime now, and we're already seeing what he can do. Um, 
do I think Dustin Martin's had a better career? Do I think Patrick Dangerfield's had a better career? Do I think Nat Fife, you know, do I think they've had they've been better players for longer? Of course they have, but they're all considerably older. I, I think he's the man I'm I'm taking if I'm if I'm starting a team. He's he's the most dominant sort of midfield player that can go forward. And again, the age is a, is the huge factor. Fair enough, uh, JB. Michael Voss is Carlton's savior. You're the big Carlton non-fan fan here. <laughs> You're the fan of it, <laughs> the biggest Carlton fan on this podcast. Um, <laughs> well, it's, it's too early to say if he's going to be the savior, isn't it? Because there's always a, a big unknown when you when you hire a new coach. Um, I mean, I thought David Teague could be the savior with a, a few new assistants and new voices around him. Um, we've seen that work with a few other clubs, Simon Goodwin, uh, Damien Hardwick, um, before him. So he can be. I think he's done a pretty good job with the power in his time there. I think he was there for, what, five, six years after his stint at the Lions. He led the Lions to a final series. Um, notably, coaches are always better in the, in the second time around. So if there is anyone that can steer the ship in the in the right direction, I, I think it can be Vossi. Um, I think he knows, looking from the outside, and I've touched on it before, the defensive instability that they do have. Um, he knows that that's an issue, but he's also got probably one of the best key defensive duos and probably one of the best key forward duos in the competition that he gets to work with. Um, and you couple that with Cripps and Walsh in the middle, I think they're set and I, I think he can lead them in the right way. Christian, I'm going to try and lead you into making a big call because you've been hesitant to so far today. Uh, you mentioned the Tigers before. Richmond won't make the eight next year. Um uh... No, nah, they'll make the eight. I'll, <laughs> I'm stick it. They, they won't. I might not be sticking it out far enough for you. I don't think they'll make the four. Um, and I think, you know, I don't know who the two, you know, you expect Melbourne to be on top, um, Bulldogs to be up there, Port. I think Richmond will be a fair way away from the, you know, the number one team in it. Uh, but yeah, I'll still be tipping them to make the bottom, bottom half of the eight. Fair enough. Uh, Jake, as we mentioned off the top, we're going to have Chris Dory, uh, ramping up his coverage for us for, for trades and draft uh, taste of what's to come uh, if you can. Uh, yeah. He, he sent an email through to us uh, earlier in the week. Um, well, yesterday, Monday, uh, <laughs> losing track of my days. Um, oh, the, the length of content he's got planned. It's uh, the length of your arms. So there's, there's lots of good stuff coming. As I said, comparing number one picks, what every club sort of needs to do. Um, his phantom draft will be coming. Uh, power rankings for October and his last couple of weekly sort of draft wraps that he, that he does. Um, and then post post draft, he'll be sort of analyzing how each club did, but we will, we will come back for a couple of specials, I believe with him um, to sort of go through, through what each club needs and, and sort of who are the number one picks and who are the top sort of selections in this draft. Yeah, absolutely. So keep your eyes peeled. Not sure when we'll be doing those, but if you are subscribed uh, to the podcast, if that's on Apple, if that's on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, I'm sure you'll be notified when that drops. Uh, Christian, thanks for joining us. Uh, you might not be around for those uh, episodes unless we get you on, so we'll have to ask you. But if if not, uh, many thanks again for your contribu- contributions this season. It's been, uh, look, you've carried the podcast really, to be fair, uh, and you've done it for the last two years over Zoom. So we, we've got to thank you and hopefully we can get back into the studio as we were for year one from next year again. Yeah, that feels um, a long time ago. That, that last, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> last one in the uh, in the studio. So look, thanks again for your contributions. They're, they're extremely valuable and they're, it's a huge part of what makes this podcast tick. So many thanks to you. 
I love it. Best part of my week. <laughs> we'll have to get that on a, uh, we'll have to chop that up and put that in an ad, Jake, for next year. Yeah. Uh, Jake, good to speak to you as always. And we'll speak later in the season. JB, uh, as I Jordan, said, well done. Good, if you're gonna, good debut. <laughs> if you're going to pump up the blues, you can come on anytime you want. So to everyone at home, thanks for listening throughout the year. If you do want to keep up to date with trade, free agency, draft, all that sort of stuff, uh, espn.com.au forward slash AFL. Our man, Chris Dory and uh, the team here will be keeping you up to date. So uh, keep an eye out, as I said. Guys, thanks for joining us. Uh, and to those of you uh, listening at home, we'll speak to you in the next one. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod, wherever you get your podcasts.